Okay, let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, uh, we truly want to pray for your Holy Spirit to work powerfully within us. And uh, that we may understand your word, understand the glorious message that you have for us, and the power of the Holy Spirit working in our hearts, and the forgiveness that we have in Jesus. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now I went for a conference last week, and uh, as you will see during this today's sermon, I got a lot of illustrations from it, but uh, they're good ones, so I hope that you enjoy them, and it helps you understand today's passage. Now for a moment, I want you to think of your life as a car. Okay, as a car. Just imagine, okay, you're maybe a old, maybe not drivers, but you understand the concept of a car, right? So imagine your life as a car, and I want you to think of your life as this car, and where does the gospel of Jesus Christ fit in this car? Okay, so your life is a car, gospel of Jesus Christ and his resurrection is there from the cross. Where does it fit in this car? So for some people, maybe as you look in the car, you can't see the gospel of Jesus Christ at all. And why is that? Because it's actually in the boot, right? Locked away, hidden and unseen. So I'm not sure whether that's your, your life. Uh, we know where the gospel is sitting. For some other people in their life, the gospel of Jesus, when, they, when you look in the, the car, you actually see that the gospel is sitting in the back seat. And uh, the gospel really doesn't have much of a role to play in your life as you drive around. But once in a while, you know, like a backseat driver, the gospel there sort of nagging you, you know, maybe telling you if you've done something really bad. For some other people, the gospel of Jesus Christ is maybe sitting in the passenger seat next to the driver. And, uh, you know, it's sitting there and it's sort of a partner with you driving the car. But at the end of the day, the gospel is just a partner to you driving the car. For some of us, maybe the gospel of Jesus Christ is sitting right in the driver's seat and is actually driving our lives, is driving the car in the direction in which we should be living. Now, what is the impact of the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, the gospel which is taught to us in the Bible, in your life? And I think it's something that we have to take very seriously. I mean, I guess it's an interesting illustration, but it's something we have to take very seriously because there's something which is spoken about here in 2 Corinthians. Now, as we've seen in the book of 2 Corinthians, um, Paul spent quite a large amount of time in the city of Corinth, in the ancient world, uh, one and a half years to be exact, developing and starting the church. But after Paul had left Corinth, there were people that came in after him who started criticizing Paul. And we saw that over the last few weeks. They were saying that Paul was not a very impressive person, even by today's standard, maybe he wasn't very impressive. He wasn't a good speaker, maybe he only writes well. And the uh, last few weeks we saw that they even questioned his character. You know, he said things, but he didn't do them. Why did he do that? But as we look at chapter 3 today, I think that if we, we actually read it uh, within the context of the flow of 2 Corinthians, we actually see that the Corinthians, uh, they were questioning not just Paul the Apostle, but questioning the Gospel that he brought because it didn't seem very impressive. Uh, if you look at, look at uh, chapter 3, the word glory keeps coming out, right? Glorious, glorious, glorious. And I think that what was happening is, uh, as many commentators will say, the Christians in Corinth were actually saying maybe this gospel uh, that Paul brought was not very impressive, not very glorious, and they should move on to another gospel, another message. They would take the gospel of Jesus Christ and his crucifixion and his resurrection and put it in the boot of their car, of the church life, and of their own lives. And instead, what they were doing, as you look in uh, context, is that maybe they were turning to another gospel which seemed to center a lot around the old covenant, around the law, around the sacrificial system and the temple. 
Okay, and so that's why in chapter 3, Paul really addresses them and he says to them, why would you want to go back, now that you have the gospel of Jesus Christ, to go back to the law, to the gospel of uh, another way of getting to God? And that's where verse 5 to 9 comes in. So if you have your Bibles, I would really appreciate if you look at them, because then you'd see that uh, it's not just what I'm saying, but hopefully it's what the Bible is saying, and you could check it out for yourselves. And in verse 5, Paul says, Now, not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters of stone, came with glory, so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, fading though it was, Will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that condemns men is glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? So you can see here from verse 5 to 9, his, Paul's competence uh, was called into question. But the competence of Paul wasn't the only thing that was being called into question. It was the gospel that he brought. And Paul begins by comparing... Uh, the, the gospel that he brought, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the new covenant, with uh, what the Corinthians were going back to, which was the old covenant, the law. And he says, why would you want to go back to the old way of doing things? Why would you want to go back to the law? Because if you compare the two, uh, what is the benefit of the new covenant compared to the old? So if you look up here on the slide, uh, you can see it a bit more as I highlight it. Uh, we're going through it systematically. And you see that in verse 6, he says... If you go back to the old covenant, which is the letter, the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Can you see that? The green is the new covenant, the yellow is the old covenant. And he said, now if the ministry that brought death, the old covenant, which was engraved in letters of stone, came with glory, so that Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory fading though it was, will not the ministry of the spirit be even more glorious? Okay, then he goes on to compare again the old covenant. If the ministry that condemns men is glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? So if you put them side by side, imagine if you had a table with two uh, columns, you see that he's saying, look, the old covenant brings death, it brings, it kills, it brings condemnation, but the, the new covenant brings righteousness and it brings life. Now, we're not saying that, uh, and I think Paul is not saying that the Old Testament law is completely useless and needs to be junked and thrown away because other parts of the, uh, the Bible tell us that the Old Testament law is useful in various ways. But what Paul is saying is the Old Covenant could not save, could not bring life. Uh, it could not bring uh, salvation and righteousness, but instead it killed and brought death. And in Romans chapter 3, which is the next slide here, uh, Paul explains a bit more about why the law cannot save. Paul says, now we know that the, what the law, whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be de declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. So, the law cannot save us because the law actually makes us conscious of sin. Uh, once you break the law, you cannot run to the law anymore for salvation because the law condemns you. Uh, now, all of us have broken the law. Uh, you have broken God's perfect law. I have broken God's perfect law. 
anybody here perfect? We are all not perfect. No one is perfect. But God is perfect. God is perfectly holy. And because He reveals His holy standard in the law, it shows us how hopeless our situation is, how unreachable it is to achieve God's holy standard. So when you actually look at the law, it actually shows us that we are unable to save ourselves. Uh, We are unable to uh, achieve God's standard to achieve His righteousness. So if you look up here, I'm going to keep showing you this slide, right? God gave the law in the Old Testament to the Jews, but it was never intended uh, for people to be used for salvation. And Paul says, look, we must look forward to Jesus, because on the cross, Jesus brings a new covenant. A covenant is like an arrangement, a contract, a new contract with God's people, where they would be saved through the cross, and not by doing things through the law. And that's the way Jesus understood his death on the cross. Okay, before Jesus died, on the day before he died, we uh, celebrate this when we have the Lord's Supper or the Holy Communion. We always remember Jesus' words in the Last Supper before he went to the cross. And at the Last Supper, he explained the meaning of his death. And uh, we often skip this, right, because we always eat the bread and drink the ribena. But after this, next slide, we need to pay attention to his words, right? So in three of the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark and Luke, he says the same things, okay? So eyewitness accounts tell us the words of Jesus, but slightly different. And Jesus says about the cup in Matthew 26, verse 27, chapter 26, verse 27, right? If you see it up here, I've highlighted it for you. He says, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. See, this is a new covenant that comes about through the blood of Jesus on the cross. A new covenant where His blood will be poured out for the forgiveness of sins. In Mark chapter 14, here Mark 14, He says, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for for many, He said to them. And in Luke chapter 22, in the same way, just here, in the same way, after the supper, He took the cup, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. So Jesus all along is saying that God never intended for people to be saved by going back to the old covenant, but on the cross, Jesus would bring life and righteousness and forgiveness. And that's why, if you look again at the context, okay, context is so important, Paul says that his competency in verse 5, we are not competent in ourselves, but our competency comes, Why? Because of the message in verse 6, He has made us competent as ministers of the new covenant, of the new covenant. So Paul is saying that he is not competent as an apostle just because he's an impressive speaker, or he looks good, or he's very charismatic, or he's got great organizational gifts, he's a great leader like Winston Churchill or something. No. Part of his competence comes because of the message. The message gives him his competency. Because this message brings life and righteousness, not death and condemnation. And that's why it's a very important lesson for us, even right at this point. Because as many pastors have said, and even for myself, maybe for those of you who've gone to churches when you're young, I remember going, sitting through many, many, many chapels at school. Alright? And I remember, one of the impressions I got uh, in my young age was that, you know, Christianity was all about being a good person. And people still think like that. That Christianity is about being a good person. You must do this, you must do that, you must do this, you must do that. But Paul is saying that that's actually going back to the law, isn't it? Uh, 
if you just if every week at church we just say you must do this, do that, do this, do that, it's all about legalism, the law. But the gospel that we we should actually focus on, the, the gospel that the Bible talks about is the gospel of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, what Jesus has done for us. So Christianity is not what we do, but it's about what Jesus has done for us at the cross. Because what Jesus has done for us is what saves us, is what gives us righteousness, what brings us forgiveness. Now I was thinking about it a bit uh, during the week, why would the Corinthians want to go back to the law? Why is it in many churches, why is it in chapel when I was uh, growing up, why is it they kept telling us you must do this and do that? Apart from uh, keeping, keeping discipline at school, I was trying to figure out why that was. And I was thinking, maybe it's because when we can do things, we feel better about ourselves. You know, we feel proud about, we've achieved something. You know, we, we like to feel good that we've achieved something. But the problem is, the law was never made to be achievable. We cannot keep the law completely. You might feel good about yourself, but if you really measure yourself up with God's standard, you will know that you have never ever made it. You can never achieve it. You've always failed at some point or another. And therefore, we always must turn to the cross. Because at the cross, we know that when Jesus died for us, He has forgiven us our sins. And therefore, when we go to the heart of Christianity, the heart of Christianity is always about what Jesus has done. And not focusing on what we do, but focusing on the forgiveness that comes at the cross. So we should never lose that. Right, that should always be at the driving seat of our life, what Jesus has done for us at the cross. Now Paul goes on, if you look, turn to me your Bibles again. In verse 7, I'm going to read you the same thing. But he, he compares not just what the Old Covenant and New Covenant have brought, but it actually, he actually looks at the character of the Old Covenant and New Covenant. So in verse 7 he says, Now the ministry that brought death which was engraved in letters of stone, came with glory, so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, fading though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that condemns is glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. For if it was fading away with Sorry, if what was fading away came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Now, what is the word uh, that keeps being repeated here? It's a very simple word, right? Glory. It's just glory, glorious, 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 right? Now, if you look here very carefully, uh, if you look up here on the slide, next slide, he keeps comparing the glory, the, old, the yellow, the, the glory of the Old Testament with the glory of the New Covenant, sorry, the Old Covenant of the New Covenant. So the old covenant is yellow, the new covenant is green. Actually, it looks quite similar. I have to change colors, right? Okay? But you can see that what he's trying to say is the old covenant glory is fading away. It, it, is, it is nothing compared to the, new, to the glory of the new covenant. And in verse 7, in verse 10, and verse 11, it keeps saying, compared to the glory now of the new covenant, the old covenant is, is, is over, it's past. See the word fading away? It keeps talking about the Old Covenant having a limited lifespan. It's like a light bulb, you know? A light bulb, after a while it blows, right? There's no eternal light bulb except for the New Covenant. So what he's saying is that actually the Old Covenant of the law was never meant to be forever and ever. It was never meant to be eternal. Okay, so it's it's not as if... Next slide. The picture. Oh, 
Okay, don't worry, don't worry, pictures later on. Okay. So it's not as if God had plan A, which was the law and the old covenant. And then after a while, God realized that plan A, the old covenant wasn't working. And he said, oh gosh, got to change, you know, we've got to have a different plan. This is not working out, right? Let's have a plan B. Let's send Jesus to die on the cross. Okay, that might work. Okay, it doesn't work that way. What God says to Paul in, uh, in 2 Corinthians is that God all along didn't mean for the law to be a perpetual and an eternal thing. But it was always looking forward to Jesus. Now in uh, Jeremiah 31, which is the next slide, uh, Jeremiah prophesies that there will be a time where a new covenant will come and the old covenant of the law will be superseded. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel with the ho- and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with your f- their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time. I will put my law in their hearts and write it in their, on their, sorry, put their law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I'll be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man, his, neighbor, his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I'll forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. So the, even during the time of the old covenant, God was really predicting a time of a new covenant, which would be better than the old covenant, where it says, He will remember their sins no more and He will forgive their wickedness. And they will, they will know the law in their hearts. So this new covenant is a better thing than the old covenant. Now I want you to imagine uh, for a moment that today, somewhere in the Middle East, somewhere in Israel, some archaeologist discovers in some cave somewhere the Ten Commandments on stone written by the finger of God that we read about in the book of Exodus. Now wouldn't that be amazing? Imagine if you actually could find those stone tablets with the, with the law written on them. Now, it will probably be on the cover of our newspaper tomorrow, probably on the cover of Time magazine, probably one of the greatest archaeological discoveries in history. But what difference would it make for us as Christians today? What difference would it make for us as, in terms of salvation? Or what difference would it make for us as a church? It wouldn't make any difference, right? It would, Paul is saying here, God is saying here, that it, it, it wouldn't make any difference at all. Because if you took those stone tablets and you turned them around, at the back of the stone tablet there's an expiry date. Just like in your can of baked beans or Campbell's soup, right? There's an expiry date at the back of the law, which says expires when Jesus comes. And that's what Paul is saying here, that when Jesus comes, He is so much more glorious because this new covenant is eternal and the old covenant is fading away. Now, if you look at the next slide, yep, okay. Now, if you uh, compare the two, uh, Paul says that because this old covenant is fading away and it, it, you know, there's an expiry date here and, and this new covenant goes on forever and ever, he says, this covenant of Jesus and the cross is surpassing glory compared to this glory. 
And uh, this glory, even though it's glorious, is no glory at all now compared to the new glory. So imagine, uh, this is a poor example, but imagine, you know, if you go outside at night and you see the moon on a really nice clear day, you know, the full moon, and you think, wow, the moon is really bright at night. I mean, sometimes you walk outside and it's really bright. But when the sun comes out, you can't see the moon anymore. Because the, the brightness or the brilliance of the sun is so much greater than the moon. And that's what Paul is saying here, that the brilliance, the glory of Jesus on the cross is so surpassing glory that the old covenant is passed from view. It's just, it's just it's nothing compared to it. So I was thinking, there's an application for us here, isn't it? Because the whole point of Paul's message to the Corinthians is, don't go back to the Old Covenant. Remember and recognize how glorious the New Covenant is. Now again, I was uh, listening to David Jackman last week in one of his talks in the morning, and he's saying that there's a disconnect sometimes between what we know in our minds and what we believe in our hearts, what we feel in our hearts. And I think it's the same thing here. Like We might say to ourselves, yeah, you know, the Gospel of Jesus Christ death on the cross and resurrection, that's really glorious. We know that intellectually, but we might, we might not feel that way. And I was thinking, in today's world, we are also tempted to be ashamed of the gospel that we read about in the Bible and go to other things which seemingly are more glorious, seemingly are more impressive. So what do people move to? Uh, what do they move away from uh, the gospel to? Well, they move to the Gospels that promise wealth or prosperity or Gospels which promise health and well-being or Gospels which promise uh, no pain in this life. So I remember talking to David uh, just over morning tea and he was saying that he was preaching in Christchurch in New Zealand and apparently in Christchurch uh, there was a, the bishop in that region in New Zealand I was in the front, news of the front page of the newspaper imagine that, okay? And uh, this bishop, she was saying that she wanted the Archbishop of Canterbury who was coming to New Zealand to meet him because she really wanted to congratulate the Archbishop of Canterbury because she felt that he had done the right thing by moving away from the scriptures to move to charity and helping the poor. And uh, obviously the newspapers were very supportive of this bishop because she was saying, oh no, helping the poor is very important and uh, charity is very important. And I guess in the eyes of the world, that's more important than the scripture, isn't it? But then, think of what you've lost. You've lost the surpassing glory of the real gospel of Jesus Christ dying on the cross and resurrecting so that you will have eternal life and you have righteousness. How can a gospel of prosperity, of charity, of helping the poor, of your back feeling better, of no pain, compared to the glory of eternal life and forgiveness. It cannot compare at all, isn't it? Because according to God's word, that is surpassing glory. That's like the sun in the sky. There is no other gospel uh, compared to it. And that's for, therefore, that if you read verse 12, look, tell me to the Bibles in verse 12, Paul says, Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are very bold. Now some people, when they read this uh, very bold, uh, I've heard some uh, pastors, they say, oh, uh, he means very bold in evangelism. He's going out, he's very bold in a very general way. You know, he goes out and tells everybody about Jesus. 
But I think that within the context, if you look at verse 12, he's not saying that we are, he's very bold in a general way. He's saying he's very bold in terms of telling the Corinthians that this is the way they must go. Okay, that's what the context is saying. He's, he's very bold in saying this is the only gospel that matters. Uh, this is the only thing that matters. Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection. Because it's a very arrogant message, isn't it? It's a, it's a very uh, politically incorrect message in today's world to say the only message that counts in this world is Jesus Christ dying on the cross for you. That is the only way to be saved. Because people would like to say, well, no, no, there are many other ways to be saved. But Paul, within this context, saying, no, we are very bold in saying this is the only way. Because this is the new covenant that God has brought. And this is the glorious message. There's nothing more glorious than this message. And therefore, as we look at this passage, we must be very bold and say, yes, many people want to say a lot of other things out there, but this is the message that God has, has sent for man's salvation. Now, in verse 12 to 16, uh, Paul continues on the message. Uh, you think that he hunted uh, them enough already, but actually... He has more things to say about why they shouldn't go back to the old covenant. And in verse 13 he says, We are not like Moses, who put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while his radiance was fading away. But the Israelites, sorry, but their minds were made dull. For to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. And it has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. Uh, but whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now, uh, this is quite a complicated section. Um, it, it has its background in history. Because when Jesus... Not Jesus, wrong person. When Moses, right? Two people, Jesus. I'm going to forget them right. Okay. When Moses went up to Mount Sinai to get the stone tablets written by God, uh, he went into the presence of God. And as a result, his physical appearance was affected. His face became really red. He had an advanced case of sunburn. All right? And uh, therefore, he wore a veil. Okay, he wore a veil okay, to cover his face because people were scared about how uh, radiant his face was. He was so red, like a lobster. Okay? So in, in, in Exodus chapter 34, you can, you know, it's up here. Uh, this is exactly what happened. When Moses came down, from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, so Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him and he spoke to them. After all the Israelites came near him and he gave them all the commands the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever he entered into the Lord's presence to speak with him, uh, he removed the veil until he came out. When he came out he told and told the Israelites what he had been commanded, they saw that his face was radiant. Then Moses put a veil back over his face until he went in to speak with the Lord. So this is what this section of 2 Corinthians is pointing back to. The, the, the whole incident of Moses putting on this veil. But uh, Paul actually uses the imagery of the veil to say that the Israelites or anybody in those days post the cross who read Moses but didn't see Jesus their minds in verse 14 it says there were made dull 
uh, in verse 15, uh, it says that even to this day when Moses read, a veil covers their heart. So the image is, okay, if I wear a veil like this, right, you can't see. Right? It's blocked off. You're blinded. Uh, and the imagery is used here. And what Paul is saying here is, if you read Moses, if you read the Old Testament and you cannot see Jesus in the Old Testament, if you do not look forward to Jesus, then your mind is blinded, you're, you're, you're veiled, you're, you can't see, you're blind. Because Moses actually points forward to Jesus. No point going back to Moses because Moses is actually saying, go this way, right? go to Jesus. So if you look up here, okay, uh, that's exactly what Jesus says when he comes. Jesus speaks to the disciples after he is resurrected and they're walking on the road to Emmaus. So this is what I told you when I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so that they could understand uh, the scriptures. And he told them this is what is written. Okay, written in the law of Moses, prophets and the Psalms. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And in John chapter 5 verse 45... He says, but do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you have believed Moses, you will believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, where, how are you going to believe what I say? Okay, so, uh, I don't know whether I'll put another slide. Now, next one? Oh, don't worry about that, okay. I, can't, I thought I'd put a lot more pictures. Obviously, I didn't, right? So, what Paul is saying is, what the Bible says, why would you go back to Moses when actually Moses is pointing you forward to Jesus? And I think that's so important for us, isn't it? Because we can read God's Word. If I came up here today, and I preached to you from the Old Testament, and I preached every word and every word, verse, and I, and I preached to the satisfaction of the Jewish rabbi in the synagogue, but I didn't point forward to Jesus then what the Bible says is I'm actually blind, isn't it? I, I'm veiled. I fail to see what the true message of the Old Testament. I fail to see what the true message of Moses is because the Old Testament is pointing forward to Jesus. And I think that's a very important lesson for us. When we read the Old Testament, when you read it for your quiet time, when you sit down in the quiet of the day and read your Bible on your own, which I really hope you do, okay? Which you should be doing. If you don't do it, you're not doing it, you should feel bad. Okay? Uh, that doesn't save you because I ask you to do things, but it's important for you to always do it, then you should always ask yourself this question, as I'm reading the Old Testament, what difference does it make now that Jesus has come? What, what difference does it make now that uh, Jesus has died on the cross? What difference does it make that now that Jesus is resurrected? Because many times when you read the Old Testament, it's actually pointing forward to Jesus and what He does on the cross. Now the last part, okay, for those of you who are, who are, who are following through, this is really important, right? The last part, now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Now I think uh, freedom is a very, very uh, popular word, isn't it? Freedom! has a nice ring to it. Better than bondage, right? If I say bondage, no one's going to say amen to that or anything, right? Now, everybody wants to be free. But what does it mean to be free? <coughs> um, 
The world's idea of free, freedom is you do whatever you want, living a life without restrictions. So what does Paul mean when he says, now the Lord is the Spirit, in verse 17, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. What does it mean, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom? Well, I think what he's saying is, is we live in a new covenant, as we have the Holy Spirit instead of the law, the Spirit instead of the letter, the Spirit will shape us and we can live in the freedom in which we're designed to live. Now, I want you to pay very close attention to this because two things are happening here in the New Covenant, right? We can see it in the prophecies, the next slide, of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, which look forward to the New Covenant, that two things happen at the New Covenant. Not just the death and resurrection of Jesus, but something else. So in verse 33, it says, This is the covenant I will make, the New Covenant, with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I'll put my law in their minds and write them in their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. In verse 23 of, uh, sorry, verse 25 of Ezekiel. I'll sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. And I'll remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my, uh, my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Now again, I, I put those colors there. I'm really sorry for you if, you're, if you can't see the difference in yellow and green. Because actually, that's the only way it works, right? The yellows show that what Jesus does in the New Covenant is to bring forgiveness. Can you see that? Uh, verse, uh, the last part of uh, Jeremiah, I will remember their sins no more, I will forgive their wickedness. In verse 25 of Ezekiel, I will wash you clean water, I will cleanse you, you will be clean. But something else happens in the New Covenant. Can you see that? The other color, I will put their law on their minds and write them in their hearts. I'll put a new spirit on you. You will have my spirit in you to follow my decrees and the laws. So what happens in the new covenant is not only do we receive forgiveness, but we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit to change us internally so that we will live the way we're meant to live as God's people. Okay, so next slide. Okay, finally my picture, right? Okay, now just remember the Holy Spirit does not look like a dove. Okay? It came down like a dove on Jesus. So this is the only picture I could find on the, my, my, my PowerPoint. But it, the Holy Spirit is not a dove, okay? It just comes down like a dove on Jesus. But, but what happens is, at the New Covenant, we have forgiveness at the cross, but also we receive the Holy Spirit. So what Paul is saying is, why would you want to go back to the law? Because it doesn't bring freedom, but bondage and condemnation. Live in the New Covenant because it brings freedom. Freedom to live like we're meant to live. See, there's no point living a life on which you're not designed to live. Right? A, a, a fish could swim in the ocean and look at the beach and think, I would really like to walk on the beach and maybe lie on the beach. But the moment the fish does that, it dies, right? And I could be lying on the beach looking at the ocean thinking, I'd really like to live in the ocean, but I'll also die off in the ocean. Because that's what I'm designed to do. I could be driving my car on the road and I think, well, I'd like to drive my car over, you know, uh, Lake uh, Maritree Reservoir. But obviously my car is not designed like that, isn't it? So, we are designed to live, according to God's word, 
together with God, to live in a certain way. But the only way that happens is when we live with the Holy Spirit in us. The Holy Spirit is changing us from within. And that's where we have freedom. Okay, the freedom to be the people God wanted, wants us to be. And we are free. We're so free that in verse 18 it says there, that with unveiled faces we all reflect God's glory. Because we're changed inside, we become more and more like God. And uh, people, when people see us, right, they can see that this is the way that God has, has made us to live. Now, there's another way of understanding verse 18. If you look at your footnote, and also for those of you who are using your ESV Bibles, uh, the word reflect there can mean contemplate or behold. Uh, And that freedom that Paul talks about here can also mean that we are free to look at God's face. We are not like the Israelites who had to look at, you know, who had to go through Moses and his veil. We can see God face to face. We can behold and contemplate God's face because we are now righteous before God. And that's the freedom we have. Now with this powerful, glorious, impressive gospel of Jesus Christ that we have, why would we want to ever go to any other gospel? That's that's the bottom line here, right? With this gospel that we have, we we must be bold and say, this is the only way to be saved. We don't need to listen to other gospels. We don't need to listen to other messages. There's only one way to be saved. And our personal life, in our church life, the gospel of Jesus Christ and His resurrection must be in the driver's seat. Not in the boot, not in the back seat, not in the passenger seat. It must be in the, in the driver's seat. Now in conclusion, uh, I heard an illustration by this uh, British pastor called Hugh Palmer. He said that um, during the time of the communist era, Billy Graham, you all know Billy Graham, right? Billy Graham was this very famous uh, evangelist. You can look him up on Wikipedia, for those of you who don't. Okay? Um, and he was invited to go to communist Hungary and apparently in his autobiography he went to a light bulb factory in Hungary and uh, they gave him as a souvenir a what? a light bulb okay and Billy Graham promised that he would put this light bulb in his house as a reminder and a souvenir that he'd come to Hungary but before Billy Graham left he says look I bring another souvenir for you something that's even brighter than this light bulb. And it's the light of the world, Jesus Christ. And, and Hugh Palmer was saying when he read, he was reading his autobiography, you know, being very British, he thought, how corny is that? <laughs> right? But then the rest of the autobiography then went on to say that when, when Billy Graham shared that, some of the people in the factory actually started crying because for the first time in, the, in, in communist Hungary, uh, could someone speak about Jesus so freely? And uh, Hugh Palmer said, you know, the problem for us is we are so sophisticated that we, that we don't realize what a glorious message we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ and His resurrection. What freedom we have in believing in Him and having the Holy Spirit. So I wonder whether we recognize what we have in the gospel of Jesus, this new covenant. The forgiveness, this life, the salvation, the transforming Holy Spirit in us. Uh, because if we don't, then we are in danger of losing it. Now, if you are sitting here today and you don't know the gospel of Jesus Christ and His resurrection, then I'd like to really invite you to come to a a belief in it, it? to follow it, because it is such a glorious message. It's surpassing glory that God gives you this forgiveness. You can run to it for righteousness and peace. And in the Holy Spirit, you can be transformed. You can meet God face to face. 
why else would you turn to anything else? Okay, let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we pray that we may learn the lesson that your word speaks to the people in Corinth, that there is great temptation and great danger for us to be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the cross and the resurrection, and uh, be tempted to turn to other things which seem more impressive and more glorious, uh, perhaps things which promise uh, worldly or material comforts and wealth, uh, things which are less um, offensive to the world, things which say that uh, there are many, many ways to be saved. But help us learn that we must be bold, just like Paul says, because your message uh, is one of all-surpassing glory. That is, about what not what we do, but about what Jesus has done for us on the cross. That uh, the Spirit gives us life and uh, gives us freedom to live as we are meant to live as your people. And uh, help us to be truly grateful and treasure what we have as your word speaks to us of Jesus today. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.